Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Spotlight Interviews. I'm Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with insight from a different perspective of the Business Fights Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. Would you mind just introducing yourself uh, to the Business Fights Poverty Network? My pleasure, Katie, and great to speak to you. My name is Henrietta Kolb, and I lead the IFC's Gender Secretariat, which works with companies around the world to help them to close gaps between men and women in the corporate leadership, at the workforce level, as consumers, entrepreneurs, and in the community. So um, today we've got a little bit of a, a conversation around how uh, businesses and um and civil society really think about gender. And I guess my first question really is, why is gender equality so important, both to you personally and also to the IFC? Let me start with my personal experiences. Um, so having worked in you know various countries around the world, ranging from Northern Ireland to Palestine to Tanzania to London, uh, Scotland, what really struck me in all these different roles is that women were not equally participating either as peacemakers or as economic decision makers or in the social sphere as beneficiaries of community investment projects. And it struck me that in some ways, if they were participating, you know, usually the narrative was around women being excluded and vulnerable and so, you know, more framed around the conversation around handouts. Yet what really sort of struck me in living in Dar es Salaam or in, in Ramallah was that actually women, no matter what level of income they've had, is that they're huge economic change agents and contributors to societies, but it's value that's not made visible and voices that are not being heard. And so in my view, it was sort of the challenge to actually say, look, to the private sector, and in this case, the beauty is in working at the International Finance Corporation, if you were to integrate women and men more equally into your operations, it would actually be helpful to you as a company because you gain in innovation, you gain in financial incentives, you gain in talent. And then to, of course, women themselves, if you have more financial independence, you can make more decisions and allow yourself more choices. And so I did think that actually I see was a perfect platform to sort of convert my passion into action, if you wish. And what we've seen in the past few years is clearly that the market is much more open and interested in leveraging women as consumers, customers, workers, and corporate leaders. Having said that, we all know there's huge amounts of work to be done. Um, and obviously, the G7 just put out a communique highlighting um, the opportunities there are for the private sector to get more engaged. Um, at the ISD, what we do with our clients is, of course, we provide capital that then is onward lent to women-owned enterprises. But we find that the most impact is being made if you combine capital with capacity, confidence, and community building so that you have a holistic set of interventions that really stimulates the women's market overall. Thank you. Um, so sort of going back to that, uh, those, that, those latest reports and, and where business plays a, a piece, uh, this mm-hmm. mark. This March alone, um, the UN were quoted as saying progress for women and girls remains unacceptably slow. What, why is that? Why is why are we sort of stagnating, or why do we not see bigger 
Yeah, so I think there's a global um, answer to that in the sense that, of course, if you look at women's care responsibilities, they haven't really shifted very much. And you cannot be as productive if you have, you know, care duties that now range not just obviously around child care, but as we're all getting increasingly older, also really take a huge chunk of women's life and productive capabilities at, towards the end of people's lives, i.e. caring for their parents and so on and so forth. So that clearly is one of the challenges, the redistributing um, unpaid care work and making women, you know, more participant to paid work, I think is, is one of the goals that clearly is reflected in the SDGs in, in Goal 5. But also if you look at the recommendations of the Gender Equality Council under the G7, that is clearly at the forefront. So that's one. I think the second reason is that we still have a very unequal asset access uh, and usage distribution. So if you look at the financing gap alone, it's 1.5 trillion for women-owned enterprises. Um, and so that's clearly a staggering amount of, uh, of, of a credit gap. And so filling that will require, you know, not just commitment from financial institutions, but of course also policymakers to really change regulatory requirements and enable legislation that really prevents discrimination. That brings me to my third point. So if you look at obviously the workforce, we're still stuck very much in occupational segregation. And so one, you know, good example is the transport industry. If you look at, you know, commercially um professionally drivers um from a perspective where there's data available, you know, in London to to bring it home to where you are situated, only just about, you know, two percent of cab drivers are women. And that's, you know, in, in 2018. And so that number hasn't changed much over the past years. And so, like, if we look at in emerging markets, and we've just launched a big report that sex disaggregates data around users um, and, and drivers uh, in the sharing economy, even there, you still have stubbornly high challenges, for example, in transport for women to be able to um, participate more more equally. So clearly, occupational segregation and women being paid less is, is clearly stopping stopping women to make progress. And then last but certainly not least, all tied into that is social norms that in many instances, you know, will perpetuate gender-based violence, sexual harassment, and also undermine confidence of women and girls around the world. So that's another area that I think needs tackling. Um, I think it's, it's almost like you could compare it to the Middle East peace process. You know, it's pretty clear what needs to be done. It just seems to be so perpetually hard to get it done. And so the ingredients are pretty, um, I think, now straightforward, and we have benefited from, you know, analysis of the World Bank, the IMF, McKinsey. There's more and more data sets that really show to us where the gaps are. We know more and more what works to close these, and yet we are not doing it. So something needs to change. <laughs> Yeah, $25 million question. Um, so moving a little into, into perhaps some of that solution space, uh, business like poverty, we uh, aim our kind of reason for being is to bring together businesses, corporates, NGOs, academics and policymakers. What would be your top three things you'd like each of those sectors to do to help that to create that kind of gender equality? So perhaps mm. Starting with corporates, but feel free to choose your order. Great. So actually, I'd like to um, start with maybe two things that everyone can do. Um, one is to sex aggregate data, so be it on the NGO side, on the policymaker side, academics and corporates. So I think that's an agenda that 
is still lagging behind. And I think rightly so, um, the UN Foundation, Gates Foundation and others are playing extremely valuable roles in actually getting the stakeholders to um, provide more of that data. But then the second step, and it's still relevant to all of those four, is to using that data. Because if we're just using sex disaggregated data among gender champions or advocates and so on and so forth, then we're leaving out significant fields of power and influence as to where this data could actually be transformed into meaningful um, change for women and girls. And so I think you have to have the leadership capabilities, the courage to speak up and speak out and make your voice heard, be it a male or female corporate leader or female professor or male professor, to utilizing that data. And I think we owe it to so-called beneficiaries to do that because if we ask our clients to report back, we actually owe a thing to the world to then not just sit on that data and analyze it, but really utilize it in the conversations we're having. As we know, evidence is, is key in terms of smart policy making. The last point that I say where everyone can engage is to build unusual alliances. And what do I mean by that? I think we've gotten really pretty used to the fact that, you know, one corporate partners with an NGO to, for example, improve women's access to agribusiness value chains, be it cocoa, be it coffee or tea. But what we'd like to see is having corporates, for example, form alliances among each other, be it, for example, financial institutions financing the supply chain of an agribusiness with a particular gender attention to it. So I think that's where we can really make headway in bridging companies and allowing for partnerships that might not be the most obvious, but that actually lead to bigger and scalable change. Um, I think the other part that I'd say is that we need better understanding of what works in the private sector, so academics teaming up with the private sector. But speaking the language of the private sector, that's absolutely crucial in order to better understand what is helping to sustainably shift policies and programs in the private sector to better include women and girls. So rather than splitting it up, you know, by group, I think there's sort of things to be done that really sort of the four stakeholders could do together to advance the agenda. And maybe one more thing that I would say that takes me back to one of the key challenges is around care. And so there, for example, what we've seen is IDRC has done some terrific work, um, obviously, around the care agenda and getting community-based care models evaluated and seeing how, if women and men have access to affordable and safe childcare, how that shifts and frees up women's, women's time to participate in the more formal economy. Um, but then you could bring in, of course, the private sector. And as you, you might know, over 20 countries are already mandating per law companies to provide childcare support to their employees because they're recognizing it has to be, you know, community-based, private sector enabled, and the public sector has to step up in that area as well. And so really coming together from very different, um, you know, institutions and resolving the care agenda, I think is absolutely crucial and can only be done together as opposed to in isolation. So companies that we work with, um, for example, in India, in Jordan, um, in Bangladesh are really trying to find out, okay, how can we best support our employees with care facilities? They can be on-site or off-site, or they could be um, in terms of vouchers or summer camps. There is no one-size-fits-all, but the importance is to ask employees what would help them to be their most productive um, um, self at work and the most motivated and happy self at work. And what we've noticed, and I think that's pretty exciting, is that actually companies who provide childcare support reap huge business benefits. 
So I encourage, and I think Business Fight Poverty does that beautifully, is instead of working in silos to really come together around a very concrete topic and then resolve those challenges. How does ISC, how do you personally choose what to focus on? Hmm. Let me just jump back one more time to the question around, you know, what partnerships could look like for gender equality and give you one quick example and then come back to the selection and focus. So one thing, of course, you know, we're all very committed to is to advance um, knowledge around what the private sector can do around mitigating sexual harassment and reducing it at the workplace, but also in communities. And so one, for example, example that stands out to us is we've launched a business coalition in Papua New Guinea that we're now also um, looking to replicate in other countries that really comes together to see what can, in this case, 60 companies do to have a meaningful anti-sexual harassment policy that translates into an impactful program that extends into the community. And there you are really required to work across NGOs who have worked in that space for a very long time, multilateral organizations like the United Nations, the government, and then the private sector to come to solutions that really take into consideration the best of the best knowledge that's available, but then tailors it more specifically to the workplace. And so we've seen the results in Papua New Guinea specifically where violence rates are experienced by 70% of all women, that companies recognize addressing gender-based violence is obviously the right thing to do, but it also reduces absenteeism, it reduces, obviously, you know, increases, I should say, productivity at work, and it really helps both um, women at the workplace as well as in the community and on public transportation to feel safer which is absolutely crucial if you want to generate an inclusive society that is benefiting from economic growth. And so continued attention and building alliances and partnerships around gender-based violence, I think is important so that we move it really into, you know, not from a moment, which, you know, the media moves on, but really from a moment into a long-term movement. Um, so I think that's one more example I just wanted to give around um, the partnerships. Now, in terms of what to focus on, I think, well, we have a very good guide as to what to focus on because the World Bank Group Gender Strategy was put together in 2015 after extensive consultations with governments, with the private sector, with civil society. And so that has literally four pillars uh, in terms of guidance. So one is, you know, um, access to basic services, so education and health. The second pillar is around generating more and not just more, but better jobs, i.e. equal pay for equal work, um, not so much just low-skilled work and so on and so forth. And then the third pillar is access to assets, including technology. And the fourth pillar is decision-making and raising the voice and including the voice of men and boys and working in tandem um, with, with men as partners. So these are our four pillars, but even they are pretty broad. And so what we try and really focus our attention on is where can we make the biggest impact with the client base we have? And so we are very much guided by utilizing our unique opportunity as an investor and a mobilizer of resources to make sure that the private sector companies we invest in can be at the forefront of closing these gaps. And because we are investing in many financial institutions, we clearly believe that around you know access to asset is a key, key pillar we can contribute to, i.e. we've just um, actually started to innovate more in that space to, yes, provide credit to women entrepreneurs, but equally important is insurance as a risk mitigation tool. And again, working with insurance companies to help understand what is it that women need differently from men in terms of risk protection. 
And so exciting work has happened uh, in the sense of, you know, research and evidence. We've produced this report called She for Shears that market size the female insurance market to be 1.7 trillion by 2030 if we were to pay attention to women as customers and include more women as distributors. So clearly that's how we focus, is to align it as closely as possible to our business engagement. The other part of focus and selectivity is to actually make sure we're at the forefront of thinking when new business models are emerging. For example, in the sharing economy, we can all, you know, have very strong opinions around the independent contractor model, whether that's uh, curbing back benefits and so on and so forth. Truth is, these business models are going to stay. They're exponentially predicted to grow. So we might as well get in early and help companies understand in that space who have grown very fast and can continue to grow very fast what women and men need differently as providers on online platforms and as users. And that's where the work came in on ride-hailing that was called Women Ride-hailing in the Sharing Economy. And we foresee to be doing more of it because at this point, companies are very open to learning and we don't need to go through 10, 15, 20 years of entrenched sexism and gaps in, in, in gender um, to, to change the world. We can do it from the get-go. And I think that's really important to us. Thank you. Um, and then finally, um, our business fights poverty audience, um, you know, as much as anything is about peer-to-peer learning and, and how we um, learn from others. And, and you're clearly pioneering and leading. And Henriette, your, your CV is pretty incredible, of which I'll make sure I post it as part of this um, article. But I wanted, therefore, to ask you kind of five quick round, quick fire questions. Mm-hmm. Um, a bit more personal questions around your own journey and uh, and who you are and how you how you mm-hmm. come to where you're at. So my first quick fire question is: uh, Who inspires you? The latest person that I've been um, inspired by is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, Supreme Court judge. If you haven't seen the documentary about her life, actually preceding her sitting on the bench of the Supreme Court, it's hugely inspirational. And so I choose her alongside one second person. Um, I was working out of Palestine. And actually, as I see, we've worked with Bank of Palestine to boost women entrepreneurs. And I um, was hugely inspired by Madeleine, who's the only future woman in Gaza. Um, and who has been able to benefit from this program and has taken out a loan to create more jobs um, for her business um, that is fishing. And if you have worked and lived in the Middle East, it's not very typical for women to be engaged as fisher women. And so she's a huge role model and really phenomenal what she's been achieving, often against so many odds. Amazing. Strong, strong woman. Um, my second quite quick question then is, um, so what are you most excited about in 2018? I'm mindful we're halfway through it already, uh, but what, what sort of for the next <laughs> six months to the next year, what, what is, what's most exciting for you? Well, we've rolled out our sleeves because Women Entrepreneurship Finance Initiative was kicked off in 2017 and I see has been lucky enough to um, benefit from the first round of allocation of financing and we've committed to being really innovative and actually reimagine the world of women entrepreneurs and provide much better market and financial access for women entrepreneurs around the world. And so we now muck in and actually get that work started. So I'm excited about that. I'm also excited. I foster kids um, from difficult backgrounds. And one of my foster daughters who I have with at the moment, she's graduating high school and that's a huge achievement for her. And so I'm looking forward to that as well. Oh, well done. Amazing work. 
Good luck to her too. Um, so, quick fire question number three. So, how do you stay motivated? It's very easy. Um, I have an incredible team. I have a great working environment in a sense that I have autonomy and opportunities to be creative. And also, and I'm not just saying that, um, you know, to sort of make an impression, but the private sector has started to rethink um, how they're working with women and girls. And I think that's exciting. And we've seen that in terms of clients reaching out, in terms of financing being committed. Now, it is, you know, still at a fairly low base and there's huge room to grow. But I feel we're part of a movement. And so I want to be, you know, part of like opening more doors and really bringing more women and girls into into the economy. So that makes me feel motivated, as well as exploring the wonders. As you can hear, I'm German um, in my accent. And so exploring the beauty and the wonders that um, America has to offer. And so um, that, that's another factor. Hiking and biking around Washington, D.C. Is, is pretty exciting. Thank you. Uh, quick fire question number four. Say, so what does personal success look like to you? Oh, the way I know, I'm still here. Um, the way I would probably <laughs> put So one is, I love to have a sense of belonging um, in terms of a community. So I couldn't easily see myself as a consultant. I love building teams and kind of growing them and exploring the world with them. So a sense of community and belonging is important. The second is a sense of purpose and what am I doing in my life, um, including at work. So that's tied into my to my work life. And then I think the third pillar is, and that's personal success as well, is sometimes to recognize we are part of something bigger. It sounds quite spiritual, but like sort of, you know, being aware of the transcendence that you know, there's not just a universe, but probably multiverses and that we are part of a, a larger universe. And, you know, I think just being out in nature often puts you in your place. And I think these three parts are sort of ingredients, I guess, for personal, maybe success, but actually more maybe affiliated with personal happiness or joy. Um, so I think if I have those three elements in my life, I'm pretty, doing pretty well. Not always easy, but I'm trying. <laughs> Amazing. Considering how busy you are, and the final, my final quick, quick fire question: um, What advice would you give to someone just starting out on their career? My advice would be to read as much as you can and long feature articles um, beyond Twitter. Um, I think that's one. The second is, and not to get sidetracked, and the second is to be really following wherever you can what you're interested in as opposed to where you should be strategically, i.e., you know, don't overplan life, don't overthink it. In particular, I think, um, sort of, you know, for the generation that's upcoming, shifts are constant and, and changes is, is almost um, built into how you approach your work life. So sometimes there's no real use to kind of be overly committed to having five, ten-year plans. I would say jump in and make sure that you are entering a position or role that you can mold, make your own, and kind of get excited about, and I think the rest will come and follow. So for international development, I think as many people would say, start out in headquarters and then go into the field and then go back to headquarters. And I just never followed any of those rules. I just really sort of looked what I was keen and interested on and oftentimes knew nothing about and just made a go at it and tried it. And in some instances it works, and of course there's other parts where it does maybe not work as much. But it, it has been, I think, most rewarding. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.